Good morning and welcome to Ordinary Life, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. I'm glad you're here. And um, we are uh, talking still about this coming Saturday with, um, let me push this button, Dr. Jackie Lewis who is Minister of Public Theology at Middle Church in Manhattan. She is a woman that Sherry and I and a number of other Ordinary Life attendees met a couple of years ago at a Richard Rohr conference. And she was dynamite. I mean, really, really amazing. She uh, stirred up people and um, <clears throat> she stirred up people. She was edgy. She did some great stuff. I just... I was smitten with her, and uh, at some point over the very long weekend when people were in line to get her to sign one of her books, I went up, and uh, when it came my time to go to her, I said, I don't, have, I don't have a request that you sign a book, but I want you to remember my face. Because <laughs> you will see it again. <laughs> because when I get back to Houston, I'm going to get in touch with you and see if you will come to Houston to uh, do an all-day workshop with us. And anytime I do this, I pull the big cards out. You know, I said, we've had Ilya Delio, and we've had, uh, you know, other other people. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and she said, sure, I'll be happy to come. Yeah. And I found out during the time from then until now, as I've gotten to know her better, she's in an interracial, biracial marriage. I uh, don't know if they have children or not. But she's married to a United Methodist minister, mm -hmm. and um, I don't think he has a role at Middle Church, but I'm not I'm not sure about that. But she's going to be doing a workshop, uh, a webinar here next Saturday, and we will start around 9 a.m. Go to probably about 11:30. We're going to work out the details of that this week. So if you're terrified of sitting in front of your computer all day, I can assure you that is not going to happen. Uh, we will have two blocks of presentation, and Holly and I will be engaged with her. We're engaged with her. We are engaged with her. We're engaged. <laughs> so I just sprung on Holly this morning, and I really want her to be uh, more involved. And the workshop that Dr. Lewis will be doing on our webinar meeting is called The Call Within, Dismantling Racism from the Inside Out. Now, we did a webinar with um, Michael Morewood that was very successful. Um, and we've never done anything like this coming up. So it's an experiment, it's a work in progress, and I really hope that you will, uh, will join us for, for this. Yeah. So you wanna add anything to that? No, I just think let's try to get a sort of more concrete schedule for her, from her this week, and um, sign up. I, I can't imagine that it won't be worthwhile. So yeah. I think it will. I can guarantee that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she seems dynamite. I've listened to a few things with her and um, really like her energy. So sign up. She'll also be here with us on Sunday, live streaming um, through the Ordinary Life regular time. Um, yeah. We are truly living in between, <laughs> aren't we? Aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> How's it playing out for you with your kids in school or uh, not in school or in, in school, in not in school? Uh, the schoolhouse is the dining room table. I am the principal, the counselor, <laughs> the teacher, and the disciplinarian. Uh, I don't know if I told you this, but my youngest ran out the door and out the gate and down the block the other day because he thought I was being too mean. And um, so I had to run after him and get him and we both just sat on the sidewalk and cried. That's about how it's going. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard for them too. You know, I, uh, in the stuff that comes across my desk and across the computer having to do with how people are dealing with this, uh, depression rates are up, uh, alcoholism is up. Um, it's a tough time for a lot of people economically and in terms of not knowing what the future looks like. Some of our favorite businesses are closing. Yeah. It's just... We've said before there's that razor's edge, right? And we can kind of fall off of that edge at any given moment. And this is testing it for sure. 
So I, we, we have this podcast that we do, thanks to you. We didn't schedule a time to record the next one, so we can do that. We'll talk later. We'll talk later. <laughs> Becoming <laughs> your favorite fairy. Just today. We'll talk later. We have a podcast called In Between that is a take on Bill's theme over the last couple of years, which is In Between the No Longer and the Not Yet, In Between Bill and me and sometimes other people. Um, and in between is also where love occurs, where we cannot have love without one and another, without yourself and someone else or something else. So join us. It just gets downloaded every Thursday morning and uh, is on Apple Podcasts and on our website is how you can access it. I keep saying I'm going to put it on Spotify and I just keep forgetting. What is that? It's just a different way of listening to music and podcasts. Okay. Yeah. You know, sometimes um, in here, I I, um, I do what some people cheaply call magic tricks to... Oh, I can't believe those people. Isn't that rude? <laughs> uh, but I do it to get, to get people to um, think, about, um, think about things in a different way. Hmm. So I'm going to tell you ahead of time what I'm going to do. Okay. okay? I have these two cards. Mm -hmm. And, and what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make one of these cards absolutely disappear mm -hmm. from your hand. From my hand. Okay. Uh, absolutely. Is that something that you're open to? I mean, as long as I don't get chopped in half, I'm fine with it. You're not going to get chopped in half. Okay. okay. So what I want you to do is, is hold your hand out like a table. And I'm going to put these two cards in it. I want you to put your other hand on top of that. Okay. And cover them up. Okay. Now, I'm going to cause one of those cards to disappear. Okay. Now, there's a muggle way to do this. Mm -hmm. A slow motion way. Just open your hand just a little bit. Just a little bit. And I'm going to take one of the cards out. Okay. That's oh. the muggle way. That's the muggle way. This is not working like I had practiced. I'm going to have to do this again. This is not working. Here. <laughs> Let's do it again. Some other time. Some oh, other time. Okay. It, it didn't work. It didn't work. That's what that. Okay. Anyway. Miracles sometimes fall short of yeah. being miraculous. So if you're uh, inclined to donate money to Ordinary Life. <laughs> There's a magic fund right there on the website that will send Bill back to school to be able to refresh his, his miraculous wonderings. Anyways, there is also a donate Maybe button. before class is over today. Okay. I, I'm down. I, I was ready. <laughs> so there's a donate button on our website that you can click on and it'll take you to a form and you just fill in the memo ordinary life and those funds go toward really great causes. We've um, supported homeless programs. We've supported uh, immigration programs. We've supported Black Lives Matter HTX. Um, we have supported Ooh, I can't even think right now, but a lot of different wonderful programs that are uh, working in um, historically disenfranchised communities to empower people. And, so thank you for your donations. And the needs are really great. Yeah, the needs are great. So um, no matter who you are and no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. My hunch is that most people whether they have any religious training or background, are familiar with this beatitude. The beatitudes are nine sayings that are put at the beginning of a block of material in the Gospel of Matthew that is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And Holly and I have been using this material after we did the Eightfold Path in Buddhism um, as a time to um, kind of raise our awareness about moral values and principles, ethical guidelines to be of use during this time of pandemic. Eugene Peterson translates this verse this way. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. Now, most scholars agree that the Sermon on the Mount is a construction of the early followers of Jesus. That is to say, Jesus uh, didn't give this material in one sermon in the format that we currently have it. 
There is no doubt that Jesus taught and his early followers practiced nonviolence. And this beatitude speaks to that principle of nonviolence. To say that Jesus' teachings were deliberately constructed to cause conflict would be inconsistent with the rest of his teachings. But he did say at one point, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. That has an entirely different meaning, which we'll get to in some later Sunday. Blessed are the peacemakers. Mm. Ours is not a peaceful time. In each issue of the week, a news magazine that I take, there is a closing two-page story called The Last Word. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with The Week, uh, it's a very unusual publication, a news publication. They have no reporters. A staff of uh, about 20 people um, comb the various media, television, print media of all types, from all over the world, and they pull together what both the right and the left are saying about the biggest stories in the country and the nation and the world and that sort of thing. A few weeks ago, like two weeks ago, the last word was titled The Growing Threat of Violence. And this photograph accompanied it. It's from Tyler, Texas, and I want to read to you the opening paragraph. The goal of the rally was to oppose the deployment of federal agents to quell <clears throat> protests in American cities and to register new Democratic voters in the heart of conservative East Texas. But it had hardly begun when hundreds of conservative counter-protesters and supporters of President Donald Trump, many with assault rifles slung over their shoulders, swarmed the town square and began pushing and shoving and yelling obscenities. And the article goes on to report dozens of similar stories from all around the United States. Mm. I think that's terrifying. But, the, you know, when we think about people who show up peacefully, it, peacemaking is taking a side. They're not neutral in their aims or in their approach to change. I think of people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King and their steadfast commitment to transformation through nonviolence. They had an aim and the goal was large, but they did not do it through force or means of weaponry. We don't have to use a single weapon, in fact, to show immense strength. Interestingly enough, when I did a Google image search for a peacemaker, an entire page of Colt single action revolvers came up. No images of peaceful protesters, no images of Gandhi or Jesus or those marching in solidarity across the world today. A gun is not a symbol of peace. It's delusional to think that it is. But apparently you can buy a peacemaker right off of Amazon for $125. Is that all? Yeah. Thinking about it. So you can buy a gun off Amazon and you don't need to have a license? This picture or? is from Amazon. That picture is from Amazon. Mm -hmm. You know, I personally think that the open carry laws mm -hmm. are an expression of our national psychosis. Mm. Mm -hmm. and you get enough guns out waved around in public, and eventually one of them is going to be used. This is Cal Rittenhouse. Yeah. And you know he's being seen among uh, right-wing right militia groups as a hero. Yep. And he shot somebody at a peaceful protest. He shot somebody at a peaceful and protest. And walked right past a line of policemen in riot gear. So the other night uh, we watched a documentary, which I want to encourage you to watch. This is uh, the publicity that I could get off the internet. It's called The Social Dilemma. It's on Netflix. I highly recommend it to you. It's disturbing, but um, law enforcement agencies, according to one report, are doing their best to stay ahead of the curve on this country's coarsening divide, which they say is being fueled by rampant misinformation on social media that is designed to stoke tension. So we're becoming a country that is more at odds with each other in a society that is marked by distrust and disbelief. 
The article in the week reported a gathering of hundreds of motorists, many flying Trump and Confederate flags, who descended on a black church in Dallas mm. that displays a two-story Black Lives Matter sign. We thought for a while here at St. Paul's after the murder of George Floyd about putting signs up on our property. And the big concern was if we did that, the risk of vandalism and defacing of the signs. Just as in this <clears throat> article that, that they're talking about. And so participants on both sides of this say that America's democracy is really teetering uncomfortably that it's rattling their, their confidence that either the law or neighborly goodwill can prevent even worse confrontations in the weeks ahead. One of the developers of, the face, of Facebook, who no longer works there because of his concerns about where the ethics of the company was leading the country, was asked, if nothing happens, what is going to change? And he thought for a long time and then said, Civil war. That's chilling. But then, just this week, we learned that the FBI has charged 13 men with a violent plot in, that included storming the Michigan State Capitol and kidnapping Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Three years ago, the polling firm YouGov asked Americans whether they thought it could ever be justified for their political party to use violence to advance its goals. Only 8% of the people said anything other than never. Mm. This year, the number saying it's okay has doubled. So we're seeing an increase in the number of Americans who believe that violence is the only answer to the country's political divisions. One of the political scientists who oversaw the polls said, we're seeing more and more citizens expressing openness to violence as more and more partisan leaders engage in the kinds of dehumanizing rhetoric that paves the way for taking violent action. Since May of this year, more than 50 people have driven vehicles into peaceful protest mm -hmm. marches. Why are we this way? Why the passion for war rather than peace? It was, by the way, in the context of just the kind of thing that's going on in our country and around the world that spiritual sages and teachers emerged to create what I call the evolution of right religion. We now refer to it uh, using Carl Jasper's phrase, the first axial age. And that religion can be summarized in the phrase, do not do unto others what you would not do unto yourself. Our solution lies in embracing this, mm -hmm. pure and simple. In one of the most important books I ever read in my life, uh, a book uh, called The Denial of Death by Ernst Becker, this one a Pulitzer Prize, I began to get one understanding of why some people, and this is mostly men, not women, invest themselves in a passion for fighting. And to summarize this book, we humans have to work out a way to live with the painful knowledge that we, of all living creatures on this planet, have the consciousness that we are going to die. And it's in that consciousness that we come up with two conflicting needs. We need to feel that we are unique, that we're special, that we are individual, that we matter. And at the same time, we need to feel that we belong to something greater, more glorious than ourselves. And nothing quite fills this desire to be heroic and to matter, mm -hmm. both individually and collectively, like war or conflict. Yeah, it's Martin Luther King and those who participated in the nonviolent movement waged a kind of war against injustice as a way to make a bigger table to broaden the seating arrangement, if you will, and as a way to cooperate between the power systems and the people systems. His writings talk about um, the, the demonstrators readying themselves for non-reactivity. So they, part of their practice was 
sitting in non-reactivity as they practice hurling insults and even blows on one another. We see this in Jesus's behaviors too. This is also, you know, we talked about the Buddha before this, and part of Buddhism is forming a, an equanimity, a non-reactivity toward what is going on in the outside, but remaining equanimous inside. But theirs was not one, a war of weapons and assault. It was a challenge to our conscience, an invitation for us to approach the resistance inside of us and ask questions like, what scares me about inclusion or economic equity? This is essentially a battle with our shadow. Almost 60 years ago, MLK wrote his letter from a Birmingham jail. Whoops. That, there we go. Uh, which I reread this week, and it is so prescient and is so relative today. His cosmology is one of interdependence. It is in alignment with the way. There is so much relevant in this letter, and he writes, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow provincial outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider within its bounds. So again, he's, he's working for full inclusion so that there isn't an outside agitator, but only those who belong. Both Jesus and MLK asked us to take a stand, to choose which side of history we want to be on the one that bends towards justice or the one that slides back? Do we want to be essentially healers or hoarders? When MLK and his, uh, his cohort led the nonviolent protest movement, he was called an extremist. He writes that at first he was really uncomfortable with being called such because of the association between extremism and violence. But Gradually, he began to realize that he was in good company with the likes of many who questioned the power systems. He implores, the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or the extension of justice? He was not just a dreamer who wanted his black children to hold hands with white children. That speech has definitely been co-opted as sort of the, the pinnacle of his ministry, if you will. But he was really about economic equity, social equity, and inclusion. And if all of those things were achieved, then maybe we can imagine holding hands. He wanted systems to change. He spoke out about his disappointment with the white church its refusal to speak out about or operate under an abundance of caution instead of radical inclusion. It's important to ask, have we come far enough today? Have we done more to maintain our comfort or to promote radical inclusion? We can look at the current times and say, well, we have laws for integration. We have statements about inclusion. We are okay with uh, same-sex marriage, but why do we still struggle today? And what is that struggle for? I think it's for our integrity. We are in a fight right now for the integrity of our nation. And I would even say of the Christian religion. We need to get our hearts and minds right, as we talked about last week, about the racial, economic, gender, and environmental inequities that exist. My son asked me recently, my nine-year-old, Mommy, why are some people, why are some white people mean to black people? My sons are biracial. I don't know, baby. I just don't know. This might be some kind of cognitive dissonance for him to ask of his white mama. And in 1963, so 60 years ago, King's daughter asked him the same question. Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? This should not be. Not then and not 57 years later. Right now, my same son is committing himself to making a website about racial injustice. He's gathering all this information and lists of books that kids can read and lists of movies that adults and kids can watch. Yeah. He's nine. He's nine. He should not have to be worrying about this. Right. That's really the point. It's beautiful that he wants to do something, and I love that he wants to um, engage with others, and he's really inquisitive and really wants to... Um, 
to understand these issues. He also wants to understand himself and where he belongs in all of this. He's nine. But when he showed me this photo that he found to put on um, the website, this little boy, oh, it's a little blurry, of a sign reading, am I next? And he saw himself in that little boy. This is hard not to cry. And when he showed me this, the tears just came. I couldn't stop crying. It's not normal for him or any little boy to have to worry about this. And yet some part of our society has accepted that it's normal. I can't live in neutrality in that. I just can't. So I'm taking a side. <laughs> you know, throughout history, um, kings and queens and prime ministers, insurrectionists, uh, presidents, um, tyrants, dictators, whoever's been at the head of governments, um, have used war claiming that it would lead to peace. Mm -hmm. It never has. Mm -hmm. Never has. It's, it is as if the world's salvation can be preserved only by threatening its destruction. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. So one of the hallmarks of what it means to be a grown-up person, and remember that book that we don't mention as much as, as um, we ought to about when the disciple appears. One of the hallmarks of what it means to be an adult person is the acceptance of the fact that things occur in life over which we have no control. And if you pay attention to what is, which is at the heart of spiritual practice, you'll begin to notice that reality refuses to bend to our commands. One of the definitions of the kingdom of God is that it's not under our control. What is, is. What ain't, ain't. And sometimes in life, we are forced to let go of something that we want to hold on to so tightly, like a loved one who's been given a terminal diagnosis. Or we're forced to hold on to something that we would desperately like to let go of, like when we're given a terminal diagnosis. One of the things that we share in common with each other is that all of our lives contain unexpected twists, unwanted endings, challenges of all kinds. And many of them are not only difficult, but they are extremely puzzling. Every day in my morning practice, I read a prayer that was written by Reinhold Niebuhr and made popular by AA. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. This is as worthy a spiritual accomplishment as anyone could hope for. How many lives and relationships have been dashed to pieces or brought to a dead end because people tried to change things and people that were unchangeable? Or they gave up and walked away from situations and relationships that desperately needed and deserved changing. So this requires courageous and spiritually speaking, prophetic discernment. But what Holly and I are putting forth in this time today is that blessed are the peacemakers implies taking sides. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Or as Eugene Peterson has it, you're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete and fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. Jesus was called the Prince of Peace, not because he was uh, namby-pamby and rolled over and played dead. He was given that title because that title had been given to the Emperor of Rome. Uh, Jesus' followers wanted to say that the God of Jesus was God and not the emperor of the Roman Empire. As you read the history of the Jewish people in the Hebrew Bible, 
it's very much filled with conflict. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Jewish people were called to go to war with what were called the pagan nations. And this conflict was not only encouraged by God, but actually God commands the people time and time again to oppose the tyranny, injustice, and immorality of pagan nations. And when the people shouted, peace, peace, the Hebrew prophets responded by saying, there is no peace and there never can be peace without change or conversion. And not next Sunday because uh, Dr. Jackie Lewis will be here, but in two weeks we'll talk about what reconcili reconciliation really means and what judgment really means about putting things right. Jesus did not intend to bring conflict, but it's clear he knew the consequences of his teaching. He stepped into an already existing conflict between the religious leaders of his day and those that they label sinners or unclean. And in that context, Jesus took sides. He didn't say there are good people on both sides. He sided with the sinners and the prostitutes and the tax collectors against the Pharisees. In the conflict between the rich and the poor, he took sides with the poor. He did not treat each side as equally right or equally wrong or only needing to overcome their misunderstandings with one another. He condemns the Pharisees and the rich in no uncertain terms. It, in fact, it was for taking sides that the Pharisees and the rich set out to discredit him, to arrest him, to charge him, and to execute him. He makes no attempt to compromise with the authorities for the sake of false peace. Now, he does try to reconcile people, but he took sides, and he calls us to follow him. So what does it mean in our time, in our place, to take sides? That's what I believe that we are called to do. Hmm. One of my favorite poets, Jericho Brown, um, his recent book of poetry is called The Tradition, and he's uh, the 2020 Poet Laureate of the United States, actually. I know that. Mm -hmm. um, he did a interview with Krista Tibbett, and in the interview he said, you can't love me unless you love me politically. So he's a black gay man living with AIDS, which he contracted through sexual violence. And um, he takes a stand on the politics of inclusion and the politics of, of wellness. But he says in the same interview, if you are really good at hurting black people, you're probably also good at hurting the environment. If you're good at hurting women, you are probably also good at making war. So what he's saying is that there's no, we're not one single thing. And how we do one thing, I believe I've heard this man next to me say this before, is how we do everything, right? So mm -hmm. if, we, if we can engage with peace, and that means we're gonna look at how do we engage with peace in everything that we do. If we engage with war and conflict, then we are going to look at conflict in everything that we do. If we commit ourselves to justice through nonviolence, we can learn to love each other just a little more whole. I was not taught directly very much about injustice when I was younger. I was taught to be good and kind. I grew up economically and racially privileged and I assumed that that was true for everyone. Two lessons that stick out for me from my growing up are, number one, live and let live. <laughs> I can hear my dad's voice saying that. <laughs> On the one hand, this statement offers a kind of acceptance. Don't interfere with other people's lives. In some ways, it's sound advice. Let people be. But on the other hand, it's a bit passive. Are we to let people be when we witness their suffering at the hands of another? If we stand on the sidelines as observers without action, we become complicit. This teaching does need to be unpacked and examined and I believe expanded, yes. Let people live as who they are, but take a side when they are persecuted or left out for it. James Baldwin wrote, when we can, we can disagree and still love each other, unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and denial of my humanity and right to exist, then we should not just live and let live. The second thing that I was taught a lot about is generosity. My dad is a really generous person. I didn't ask for permission to share this, but something that he did when I was 22 had a huge impact on my thinking. 
One of my roommates at the time was in medical school and she was still paying off undergrad loans on credit cards. So she was amassing as much debt on the credit cards as she had for school. And so in some ways she was paying for school twice over. She was hustling together grants and scholarships to pay for medical school and was in amassing debt there too. Uh, my undergrad was paid for in full. I know how incredibly spoiled that sounds, but I was surprised to learn when I got to college A, how much college costs, and B, how many people could not pay for it. I just didn't know, because my worldview was created by my economically privileged background. So I told my dad about my roommate, how much she was struggling. I, I felt helpless and, and, and sad that she was just constantly in, in worry about this. And he asked to talk to her right then and there. He offered to consolidate her loans, pay them off, and let her pay him back interest-free once she could afford it. So when she became a doctor, and I think my dad still has this note, I'm not sure, she wrote him a note of thanks and a check. And this is the kind of man my dad is. He just, he believes in people. He taught me the same lesson to believe in people and to invest in people. They are worth it. And in many ways taught me that if I have enough, I should pay it forward. Generosity, I think, is part of taking a stand. For those with means, it really is relatively easy to put money toward programs that empower the underserved and underrepresented. Our class does this every year. But I also think that we must align our beliefs and actions in the world with that monetary generosity. We must be willing to draw near to the problems. We can't give away money without understanding the imbalances and inequities that underlie the programs we support. That's where we need to engage our imaginations. Money definitely offers, offers opportunities, but costs would not be a barrier if our social system supported the well-being of every single person, if we loved people politically. The president of the Mellon Foundation offered example, it is awesome to put money toward affordable, accessible higher education, but what about making those same awesome programs available to prisoners so that when they come out, they are equipped to participate in society in more meaningful ways. I love that idea. That's what equitable redistribution looks like. Jesus's parables and sayings were about deconstructing a big picture paradigm, overturning the oppressive, dualistic hierarchies and exclusive social systems that left 85% of the population out. His miracles or acts of healing were reconstructive. So he has this deconstructive notion of let's take apart this hierarchy. Let's deconstruct the hierarchy. And then he has the miracles and um, the parables which are reconstructive. They're evidence of the small acts of healing that we can use to restore ourselves to each other. The parables are radical. The healings are practical, ways we can act or behave toward one another that grow empathy and belonging. At the beginning of all of this, Bill and I offered that part of the work we wanted to engage in was to deconstruct the Beatitudes, to deconstruct the traditional religious beliefs amidst social and political realities. To deconstruct is useful, but it is overwhelming if we just leave a pile of rubble without rebuilding or redistributing. To reconstruct, requires participation. We pick up one stone at a time and try to build something new. Not the same building, but something new. We must be healers like Jesus. This is how transformation occurs. Besides re deconstruction and reconstruction, there's a third dimension to Jesus's ministry. Sally McFaig calls it the prospective phase. And it was perhaps the most scandalous of all. Jesus ate with folks indiscriminately. All people were invited to his banquet table. So in the miracle of the loaves and fishes, for example, and somehow I just read this differently this week <laughs> than I ever have. Maybe you already knew this. But we've, we've tended to focus on the miracle of um, creating more, creating more loaves and fishes that could feed the multitudes. But the miracle is not that he made food appear out of nowhere, but that he waves his hand to all the people around him and says, all of them are eating with me. This is the kind of miracle we need today. Any version of the Judeo-Christian God is present 
when we align ourselves with liberating the oppressed, healing the sick, and inviting the outcasts. The really cool thing, I think, about human evolution and perhaps what might be the human element. You know, my oldest son the other day before he went to bed said, Mommy, what's the human element? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's choice. Maybe it's empathy. And that's got me thinking. Or maybe it's imagination, the ability to imagine something and to make it exist. I really am not sure, but I do think that one aspect of it is choice. In this way, we defy natural selection or survival of the fittest. When we exercise choice to align ourselves with the most vulnerable or with the historically disenfranchised, we exercise this other human element, which is empathy. Jesus insists on solidarity with the outcasts, which is totally out of line with the idea that power and strength equates with survival. Empathy, and it is said that Darwin began to really think about empathy um, and didn't construct a full idea around it. He did not understand where empathy belonged in the idea of natural selection, but he saw even animals conduct acts of, of empathy. But it does make us more fit spiritually and ethically. I would much rather pass empathy on to my kids than muscles or curly hair or height, <laughs> William's laughing, and any choice that we make, if we say we believe in empathy, we must align ourselves then with the laws, the systems, the goods, and the politicians who display it. This is how we bend the arc of time. The, the, the other thing that I think is the human element, and this plays into us, is evil. This is the shadow side of choice. There is such a thing as natural evil. It could be described as the food chain, right? It's anything that dies for the benefit of another. Inevitably, suffering and loss comes at a cost to one while it might be a gain to another. But then there's deliberate evil. It's a whole other thing. And this is where humans are thought to be the only species capable of doing premeditated, intentional harm. Animal species don't wage war on one another. As our empathy towards suffering increases, be it about ecological or social issues, we begin to see more clearly how interrelated the economic, the racial, the social, the environmental issues are. And as we see this truth about injustice, I think there arises in us a kind of constructive tension that is necessary for our growth. Martin Luther King, believed that creating this nonviolent tension, which he did through demonstrations and sit-ins, helped men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding. There were times I read that Martin Luther King sat with great, great, great despair because he began to lose hope in the ability for humans to get to that place of understanding. Just by placing themselves in proximity to power, the demonstrators at that time ensured that they were seen. If one is never required to confront the beliefs or behaviors that keep us separate, understanding cannot be achieved. So metaphorically speaking, we must die to anything that keeps up the veneer of separation. And the remarkable thing I think that happens as we go further and further to the edges is that the circle actually widens and becomes large enough for everyone. I don't want to say this like it's easy, though. Mm -hmm. it's, it requires a great willingness to examine, to tell the truth, and to change accordingly. Privileged groups rarely give up their privileges voluntarily, hence the need for creating nonviolent tension. According to the privileged or those who hold power, such tension is never well-timed. The operative response to protests or to demands for change is, can't you just be more patient? Just wait a little longer. I've heard a lot of, at least the church is coming around on LGBTQIA. But for LGBTQIA people, it needed to happen yesterday, right? There's no time for patience. So this idea that it needs to be easier for us or, or, or a little bit more palatable for those in the dominant culture have never felt the sting of being left out. 
Martin Luther King postulated that these sentiments came primarily from the white moderate. We know who the Proud Boys are, the uh, right-wing extremists who, who are proud of their violence in disrupting protests. We know the alt-right overtly believes in racial superiority and does not thinly veil it. These folks are problematic, but they may not be the biggest issue even today. It is still, as Martin Luther King wrote 60 years ago, the white moderate, the ones who don't take a side, the ones who say, yeah, I agree with what you want, but let's slow down. Anyone, again, who has ever been on the receiving end of that knows that the time to address it was, is now. So MLK wrote, such an attitude of time stems from a tragic misconception, from the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time itself is neutral. It can be used destructively or constructively. Again, humans have choice over how we bend the arc. So let us not remain neutral. If we align ourselves with Christianity or with Jesus' teachings, he challenges the social order. The challenges to the social order should be our primary concern. He was clear, don't cooperate with injustice. Later, St. Augustine would write that an unjust law is no law at all. We need just enough tension to expand consciousness around injustice so that we become as good as the laws we want and as good as what those, those values that we want to live by. So that like Jesus, we become prophetic voices. I think God's family is so big and so colorful and so diverse. It is beautiful. I wanna close with one more quote from Martin Luther King, who obviously today has really influenced my thinking. He writes, any religion that professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually moribund religion awaiting burial. So I want to pick up on that mm -hmm. because it sounds like that we're going to move into the territory where I'm going to bite the hand that feeds me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I, a couple of thoughts. You, you said that uh, animal groups don't wage war on each other, but I noticed that as the animal kingdom, if you want to call it that, gets more evolved, like the apes do wage war on mm. each other. Tribes of apes, mm. groups of apes do that. And I'm wondering if, as, as the animal kingdom evolves to be more human, if they don't become more mm. aggressive. Mm. And that one of the Possibly. traits of humanity, which is, goes back to Ernst Becker's theory, is that we want to make ourselves heroic. And violence is the way that we do that. Yeah. One of the ways that we do that. Power over. Power, power over, control of territory, uh, need for security. And it never works. Yeah. That's what we don't get is that trying to make ourselves secure doesn't ever end in insecurity. Yeah. The other thing I want to check out, we didn't talk about this this week. We've had this kind of unwritten rule that we would devote only one Sunday to each step of the Eightfold Path and only one Sunday to each of the Beatitudes. I feel like we could camp out here for oh, a while. Oh, man. Heck yeah. Are you asking, should we camp out here for longer? I'm thinking maybe the week after uh, we should come back to this. Yeah. Because um, the, the whole business about how there is trouble in the peaceable kingdom um, is one that we can pay attention to because our situation is more perilous. <laughs> I remember hearing uh, John Dominic Crossan say one time that when, when the choice of weapons was sticks and rocks, mm. you stopped fighting when your arm got tired. <laughs> when the choice of weapon now is atomic weapons and drone warfare, push a button. you push a button mm -hmm. and that makes a difference. Or when you can get with a group of people who walk around with AK-47s, yeah. 
strapped on. It's just insane. Mm -hmm. It's just absolutely insane. Mm -hmm. Well, to go back to what you said about the, the dead religion part, um, Wayne Herbert, who uh, many of you know is a front row attendee of Ordinary Life sit over here. And, and if you jump on the live stream early enough on Sundays, you'll see cartoons. And I try to refresh them every week. Um, most of the cartoons Wayne Herbert sent me, um, he sent me two quotes this week that I want to use in this talk. And the first is from Nadia Bose Weber, whom you know, mm -hmm. and we, I would love to get her to come and, and speak here sometime. She is a highly tattooed, uh, very outrageous um, Lutheran minister. I think she's in Colorado. Mm. I think so. I can't remember. Um, but she's really writes good stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Really good stuff. And this is a quote that Wayne sent me this week from her. People don't leave Christianity because they stop believing in the teachings of Jesus. People leave Christianity because they believe in the teachings of Jesus so much they can't stomach being part of an institution that claims to be about it and clearly isn't. The more I have done this work, not just what Holly and I have been doing the last number of months, but the more I have been doing this work in studying the Jesus database of sayings, in studying the life of the historical Jesus, in studying what has come to us from other spiritual giants, studying the evolution of right religion that evolved with the Hebrew prophets and with Confucius and Taoism and Buddhism, uh, the more I am absolutely convinced that the solution to what ails us is spiritual, not religious, but spiritual. I do believe that religious institutions serve a very valuable function in uh, helping us to stay in touch with the tradition. I remember something that Jim Bankston, Dr. Jim Bankston, former senior minister of this church said years ago, the church has lost its opportunity to be prophetic. He was speaking particularly to the LBGTQ issue. And then he added, what remains to be seen is whether the church can remain relevant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think there are many responses that should be made to this current crisis that we're in in our country. The racial crisis, the crisis of health care, the, the economic crisis. I think there are a lot of solutions, uh, political solutions or economic solutions, educational solutions, and other things that should, should be met. But I, I think the main solution is spiritual. It's a spirituality that allows us to discover who we really are. And... How can we live in peace and joy and freedom? And, and that will require a radical and personal transformation and a struggle for authenticity and truthfulness. I, I see the need for this, the ongoing need for this in my own life, so I just assume it might be true for you too. I believe, and I think Holly Hudley does a wonderful job of holding these people up every Sunday. I believe we have Nelson Mandela's in our culture yeah. right now. You know, so just sorry to interrupt, but this um, two things are coming up. I, I think that we do have a kind of need, and I read that quote from Jane Addams on our podcast this week, in which Jane Addams, who was an activist, she helped, she's a white woman who helped start the NAACP, worked along Ida B. Wells and W.E.B. Du Bois, and she really believed in liberation. And she said, it is easy to build structures perpendicularly, top down. Lateral is, takes far more time, but they're inevitably stronger. So these lateral movements, and I think that that's what we're seeing right now. We may not have the one charismatic re leader, but we have lots of lateral charisma of people saying, join me, join me. Well, 
I think, for example, our poet laureate is mm -hmm. a Nelson Mandela. Yes. What yeah. keeps society from seeing mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't see it. Mm -hmm. So there's something that blinds us to the inherent leadership that is already in our culture. And I don't think it's going to come from white Protestant Anglo-Saxon. Unless we do our work. Unless we do our work. Unless we do our work. But it's already available to us. Mm -hmm. We can, can tap into that. Mm -hmm. I, 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 honestly, I, I think organized religion is largely responsible for our blindness. Mm. I have been and remain part of an organized religious structure that asks its members when they join to oppose evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever form they present themselves. But look how far behind we have lagged on the major social issues of our time. Racial, and now the Methodist Church is embroiled in this controversy over full inclusion of LBGT folks. What's that about except ego blindness at the institutional level? Mm -hmm. That's it. We've not seen, we've not spoken out against the very unjust structures that are on our plate now to deal with. So just like a person can have a false self, so can an institution or a denomination. And this leads me to the second quote that was sent to me by Wayne. It's by uh, Erna Kim Hackett. Erna Kim Hackett describes herself as a Korean white woman born in Seattle. She holds graduate degrees in theology. She has years of experience in advocating for racial justice issues. And this is what she wrote. This is, this is powerful. Mm -hmm. White Christianity suffers from a bad case of a Disney princess theology. As each individual reads scripture, they see themselves as the princess in every story. They are Esther, never Xerxes or Haman. They are Peter, never Judas. They are the woman anointing Jesus, never the Pharisee. They are the Jews escaping slavery, never Egypt. For citizens of the most powerful country in the world who enslaved both native and black people, to see itself as Israel, not Egypt, when studying scripture is a perfect example of Disney princess theology. And it means that as people in power, they have no lens for locating themselves rightly in scripture or society. And it made them blind and utterly ill-equipped to engage issues of power and injustice. It is some very weak Bible work. You know, as you read that, I think about James Baldwin, who said something in Nobody Knows My Name to the effect of, to obtain genuine democracy, white people are going to have to give something up, primarily fear. And this fear is about losing power. It's as, as Martin Luther King wrote, the privileged don't give up privilege easily. Um, the passage that you read, I think, says the same thing about what white Protestant Christianity. We have worried ourselves singularly about individual salvation instead of collective liberation. And, you know, we can accept this truth that we've got work to do without drowning in it. We don't have to drown in shame. We just need to accept it and choose to do as Jesus did to challenge abusive power. I think of abusive power like a funnel, you know, a funnel that you pour like a liquid into to get it into a narrow topped jar, mm -hmm. right? If you do this one way through this very narrow opening, you will be accepted. So if you do Christianity in this one way, you'll get into that narrow mouth, but turn the funnel upside down and it widens endlessly. Suddenly, it's not a lot of people clamoring for one entry into one narrow path, but it's a common beginning that widens indefinitely. I think it seems so simple, but it's hard. To attempt to summarize, um, Taking sides doesn't mean condoning violence, not at all. It's a distortion, though, of Christian theology to say that believing in reconciliation, forgiveness, and peace, and loving one's enemies means that you can't take sides or that you shouldn't take sides. There are some obvious conflicts where we ought to take sides. Being a peacemaker is not contrary to this. In some conflicts, one side is right and one side is wrong. 
One side is being unjust and oppressive and the other side is suffering injustice and oppression. And in such cases, not taking sides is wrong. We're not supposed to try to reconcile good and evil, injustice and justice. We're to do away with injustice. Not all conflicts are based on misunderstanding. Blame does not always exist on both sides. And the assumption that that's true can only be made by people who do not suffer under injustice and oppression. Some people seem to assume that neutrality is possible in all cases of conflict. Again, that's not the case. Um, not when it involves injustice and oppression. If we do not take sides with the oppressed, we are, consciously or not, taking sides with the oppressor. There's a difference between the peace that Jesus sought and the peace that the world wants. It's another reason I want to maybe revisit this. There's a peace that talked about in Paul's writings, the peace that passes understanding. I think that's worth visiting. The peace that Jesus talked about was based on truth and justice and love. And the peace the world wants compromises the truth, covers over injustices, and is usually motivated by thoroughly selfish purposes. And this is the peace Jesus shatters. Read the Jesus narratives in this light. Jesus destroys the false peace and even highlights the conflicts in order to promote a true and lasting peace. So it comes down to not preserving peace and unity at all costs, but rather promoting truth and justice at all costs. We'll come back. <laughs> uh, sign up for the webinar. You won't regret it. And Holly and I will both be here to converse with Dr. Jackie Lewis. And I hope you join us Saturday and Sunday. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step. We'll see you later.